Well, good morning, church family. It's good to sing together and uh, to look to the name of Jesus this morning. Uh, he has no rival. He's so good. Uh, well, let's dig in. As, as we just read, we are going to be in Luke chapter 14 this morning. One, one of the things that I really enjoy doing is I like watching things get built. Uh, if, you, if you know me well, you may know that about me. Um, when I see a, a piece of property and the trees start coming down, there's like a part of me that's sad that the trees are coming down. So I'm with you who get sad about that. But there's also a part of me that's really intrigued. It's like, what's coming? Like, what's happening? And is it gonna be a Tex-Mex place? Um, and... <laughs> Because that's always the hope. Uh, there's a few other things on the list. Uh, but, but then when it's like a bank, it's like, oh man, another bank, okay. Uh, it's a dry cleaners, all right. No, no offense to bank people and dry cleaner people. Uh, we love you. Um, but it's not as exciting. Um, and, and, uh, but but it's, it's still intriguing. I remember there was a property in town that was like, they started clearing it off. It's like, man, this is a big thing. And they're like, it's gonna be a JCPenney. It's like, oh man. Um, but by my house right now, there's, there's one that has cleared, they've laid a slab, but they stopped and they said it was going to be a Taco Bell. It's like, I, I, some of you like Taco Bell, that's good news. Uh, that's good news. There was not a Taco Bell for that region. So they were in need. Um, but, but that's discouraging, right? When, when progress begins and then it stops. I think one of the biggest examples we see, saw this a couple years ago is in Kunming, China. There was a city where uh, there, there were, I think, 15 uh, skyscrapers that had been built. These are large buildings uh, that were, I think, intended to be residential places, um, but they weren't finished. They were, they were built, but not completed. Um, and then after seven years of no progress and, no, and, and nothing happening with them, the authorities said, hey, they need to come down. And they, and they imploded the, the buildings and they brought them down um, because no progress had occurred. They were useless. They were, had become a, an eyesore. They had become uh, just a, a, a point of scorn for the community. A dead construction project is embarrassing. Uh, and, and this is the exact illustration that Jesus is using as he speaks to people who are, are thinking about following him and being his disciple. He's saying to them, are, are you sure? Are you sure you're ready to do this? Do you have what it takes to build the whole building, to do the whole thing? And so as we look at this, this warning from Jesus today, some strong words from Christ, I want us to see three realities that, that must be considered for those who want to be a disciple of Jesus. And so we'll see number one, the priorities of a disciple. Number two, the losses of a disciple. And then lastly, the purpose and consolation of a disciple. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer now as we continue on. Just right where you are, take a, take a minute, just quiet your soul and ask the Lord to do the amazing thing that he so uh, graciously does, that he would speak to us through his word. So, so ask him to make your heart ready, your ears open to hear. Now, would you, would you pray for me and that I would speak only what God's word says? 
Um, that, that I, my words would amplify uh, and, and, and communicate his word and not draw us from it. Uh, so pray now for, for me. Lord, we, we need you. We don't need our own wisdom. We don't need my wisdom. We need the wisdom that comes uh, from you. The all wise one, the one who created us, made us, sustains us and empowers us by your word of truth. Lord, would you do this now? In our hearts, would you, would you help us to hear? And would we see the beauty of Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, we begin in verse 25, uh, where we read that now great crowds were traveling with him. Uh, it's interesting, right, to see that there are crowds of people now traveling with Jesus. Uh, many places Jesus has gone, crowds have shown up. Uh, they're showing up everywhere he goes. But now, just to think about large crowds of people actually going from place to place with him, it's, it's pretty wild. Uh, they're literally just going wherever he goes. Uh, I heard a pastor say at one point when he was talking about them running out of space in, in their building, he said that he may just need to preach a sermon on predestination uh, to kind of clear out some seats, to run the crowd off a little bit. Uh, and I, I think he was joking, but Jesus does it. Uh, Jesus preaches those kinds of messages. The crowds are following. He's going, hey, I'm just gonna pull out my hate your family sermon. I'm gonna, and John, we see he pulls out his, you gotta just, if you wanna follow me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I'm gonna use that sermon. And, he, and people leave. And it's though he's telling the crowds, you think you wanna follow me. You think that you wanna go where I'm going, but you don't. Let me tell you what it's like to follow me. And this is what he says in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Which leads to number one, the priorities of a disciple. Wow. Well, this ought to run them off, right? Uh, Jesus went with this one. Hate, mother, father, wife, children, brother, sister. Uh, now, this statement isn't, if it shocked you a little bit to hear it, even as we read it this morning, it, it, it's not quite what it seems, and yet it is. And before you get too upset, the word does really mean hate, and, and, and yet it doesn't. And how do, we, how do we know this? First, because to literally hate these people would conflict with the teachings of all scripture. Both in the Old and the New Testaments, we're taught children, honor your father and your mother. Husbands, love your wife. Uh, parents, love, instruct, provide for your children. And to all of us as believers, we're told, how are we, how are we to love one another? With brotherly affection. Like there's to be the love, a, a good kind of love that's supposed to exist among siblings. That's not a bad thing, that there would be love within a family. But beyond that, Jesus said, what did he say to do for your enemies? Should we hate them? No, he says, love them, bless them. Pray for those who persecute you. 
So, so Jesus isn't giving a command to actually hate people. It's a figure of speech. It's hyperbole. But rather it's to show that zeal for Christ, love for Christ should make all other loves pale. Think, think back to the first century uh, for a minute. From, for most Jews who decided to follow Christ, they stood to lose much. They were like Abraham, setting out for a new home, never looking back. And, and if being accepted for them was the highest aim, like being welcomed back to the family Passover meal, uh, to be, being loved by extended family, by your hometown, uh, then, then following Jesus would probably be a non-starter. Contrast that to like when someone at our church says, man, I love Jesus. I, I, he saved me. I want to follow him. One of our, when one of our students or our young people says that, or an adult says, man, I believe that Christ forgave me. I want to follow him. What do we, what do, we do? We, we rejoice. Like we, we watch them get baptized and we cheer and we shout and we're, we rejoice uh, that we tell them that's the most important decision you'd make in your life. But for a first century Jew to say Christ is Lord, no celebration. That's blasphemy. Maybe that's how it was for some of you when you came to Christ. Maybe, maybe your family, when they found out that you were a Jesus follower, there was no party. They didn't want to go see you be baptized. We've had, we've had people at our church whose family, whose families thought that they had joined a cult. And I don't know why you're getting together with all those crazy Christian people all the time. I don't know what you've gotten yourself into, but that's what it looked like to follow Jesus. They weren't, they weren't rejoiced and celebrated. And in a very real sense, for some people to follow after Jesus, it will mean renouncing family ties. For you to follow Christ will feel like hating your friends, hating your loved ones. And I, and I believe that's what Christ is saying, that if these relationships, if they hold ultimate sway over your life, then you won't come, you won't do it. Remember last week, Jesus told a parable and when, when he, he, he compared the call of the gospel to the offer of a feast. And he said it was like someone who threw a, a large banquet. And when the feast was ready, he sent out these messengers to go and invite people to come in and enjoy the banquet. And so when it came time, when the feast was ready, when it came time for them to come in, how did they reply? They said, you know what? We've decided we're not interested. We can't do it. And if you remember, they had some funny excuses. One of them said, I, I just got some new land. Another said, got some new oxen. Another one said, I, I, I just got married. But what, what do we learn from their stories, of their stories of rejection, how they rejected Christ's invitation? It wasn't that they literally hated going to banquets. No, I'm sure they enjoyed a good party. No, what we're seeing is that they, they each, since the invitation had gone out, in the, in the meantime, they found something else. They found a different thing that they loved more. Their new thing was better. It's basically the opposite of what Christ is saying here. They're saying, they were saying, I, we don't hate your feast, but I got some land that I need to tend to now. There's something new and exciting in my life. I've got some new oxen and some new business opportunities that have come my way. I've got a new, I've, I've got a new spouse that I love. I'm build, we're building a family together. That's, that's, that's my feast now. As for the kingdom banquet that Christ is offering, they're going, I'm sure it's great, but I'm willing to give it up. 
It's not number one for me. It's not most important for me. I'm fulfilled now by home, by work, by family. And these priorities won out. And so now with those excuses ringing in their ears, Christ says to the crowd, it's not just those people in that story that I told, it's you, it's your excuses. It's your priorities that that will keep you from following me. Jesus is saying, I didn't just come to be a small part of your life. I'm not here to take your American dream, your, your dream for your life and to be the little Christian cherry on top of it. No, that's not Christ's invitation. He doesn't say to us, buy your land, build your life, build your business, build your family, and maybe just go to church every now and then. Maybe put a cross on your mailbox. Be sure to write in your Instagram bio a Bible verse. No, he says, you wanna be a disciple. You wanna follow after me. You've gotta hate other sources of life. The psalmist Asaph is a skilled musician, prophet, great power and recognition in Israel. He he had King David on his side. And still he wrote these words to the Lord. In Psalm 73, he wrote, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He's saying, I have no one else. It wasn't that he literally had no one else. He had David on his side, but, but compared to Yahweh, compared to knowing the Lord, David's nothing. That's the priority of a disciple. Jesus in in John 12 said, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Is there a dream that you have for your family? A dream that if you were to lose it, it would cause you to shrink back. It would cause you to turn away from Christ. And you might go, well, hey, Kevin, I... I thought being a Christian family was like a good thing. Like that's, that's good, right? And yeah, yes, it is. But if we aren't careful, good things can become the thing. Whatever draws your ultimate affection can become an idol, even a good thing, even family. And so Jesus is saying, it's not that family must go. It's that your heart's reliance upon it must. Look what he says in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He's doing simple math here. To be a disciple means to follow Jesus. And where's Jesus headed? He's headed to death on a cross. Therefore, what's the life of the disciple gonna be like? If you wanna follow Jesus, it's gonna be like a cross. And this has been Jesus' refrain the whole time, hasn't it? Remember back in Luke 9, he said, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And you may be thinking, well, wait, I thought the offer of Jesus was supposed to be that my burden would be lightened. He said his yoke is easy, his burden is light. So how is it also the way of the cross? How does it also require death? And, and I think this is the profound nature of the good news, isn't it? That the way up is the way down. That the path to exaltation is found in humility. The glory comes after suffering. The path for, to life, to forgiveness, 
To get a light burden is actually to follow the way of Jesus. And he says, you want to gain life? You got to go my way. You got to lose it. You want, you want to be the best husband? You want to be the best wife? Then don't be a husband or a wife first. No, first love Christ. Students, you want to be the best student that you can be? Then don't be a student first. Be a student of Christ first. You want to be the best parent that you can be? Then be a child of the Father first. You want to be the best worker that you can be? Then rest daily in the finished work of Christ. And when Christ and his grace, his work, his cross, when that defines your life, then you're, you're not your marriage, not your job, not your friends, not your children, th- then you will be unable to persevere. Then you can walk. Then you can have and experience loss and stay with him. And Jesus is front-loading the offer. It says, I don't know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in sales, but I know some sales people, they, they do front load the offers and it's a great tactic. Others, they hide, they hide the, 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 the cost to the end, um, but he's going with the front load. He's giving it all up front. And, and he tells two stories here that help them to understand, here's what it's gonna cost you, uh, which leads to number two, the losses of a disciple. Verse 28, he says, for which of you, Wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. So this was probably a functional tower of some sort, something uh, on the land, probably for security or for farming. But the idea was this, don't start a project, don't build something unless you can finish it. Like you got you have to like actually run the numbers, like do the math, make sure you can do it. And this, this isn't like Christianity following Jesus. It's not bait and switch. The call to follow Christ isn't a call to dive in before knowing what the depth of the water is. No, he's saying count it. Count the cost. And, and he's gonna say the cost is no small thing. To relinquish other loves, other hopes, this will be gut-wrenching. Like Christianity is not a pillow fight. It's warfare. It's hard. There will be bloodshed. So think it through, he's saying. Is Christ worth it to you? And by all means, don't just look at the bloodshed. Look to the other side. The payoff is tremendous. For the one who suffers with Christ, Romans says, we'll be glorified with him. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. But is the loss in this life worth it? Because if not, look at what he says in verse 29. Otherwise, after he's laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish When I had the privilege of spending a summer in Thailand a while back, uh, some good friends of ours that were there that were doing, uh, that were sharing the gospel there, and uh, they, they would speak of many Thai people who had professed faith in Christ. It was similar to the story that Jessica shared last week about Japan. They would profess faith in Christ, new believers, but they were immediately met with, with strong 
opposition from their family, anger and sadness from their parents. They were made to feel like they were traitors as though they had abandoned or dishonored the family. For, for many, following Jesus practically felt like they had given up their identity, like they had, they had lost their identity as a Thai person, given up their family. They, for many young believers, they, they, they had to, the church had to become their family. Some were disowned. And because of this, a, a phenomenon would, would, would occur within uh, these new Thai believers. That, that if they hadn't considered what their faith might cost them, over time, the draw would be to begin to identify again with everything that came with being a Thai person. That the draw would be back to their approval to need to be accepted by their family. And so they'd slowly slide back into their Buddhist practices, back to visiting shrines with their parents, back to making merit at Buddhist temples. And the growth that had seemingly sprung up with joy was slowly choked out. And seeking to hold Christ and their family, Christ and their national identity, they would, they would, they would end up proving that they had never, hold, had never held fast to Christ at all. So Jesus is saying, count the cost. The cost may include rejection by the ones you love. To follow Jesus means not just that Jesus is better than all today's options. It means that Jesus is better than every future option. To walk with Jesus may mean that you, you never really make it in your company. To walk with Jesus may mean losing closeness with your siblings. Maybe you'll be the weird Christian sibling now that isn't really included. It may mean students, it may mean being left out of the table at lunch. That you're not invited to that group of friends anymore. To walk with Jesus may mean being passed over for a promotion that you think you've earned. It may mean being scorned by neighbors. And to take it even a step further, even deeper, walking with Jesus may mean enduring violence. For many in the world, it does. It may mean being oppressed by city or state rulers for not aligning with their standards. In summary, it may feel a lot less like being at home and a lot more like being a sojourner on the earth. And Jesus is looking at the crowd. He's looking to us and he's saying, you sure you still wanna do this? It's about to be pain and loss. Are, are you sure you wanna walk with me? And isn't it interesting that, his, that in his warning, he, he's saying, if you haven't counted the costs, the world is gonna mock you when you turn back. There's gonna be scorn upon the name, on your name and on the name of Christ. If there's something that the world loves to hate, I think more than even hating Christianity, is to, to they love to hate Christians who flame out. Those who turn back. This makes me think of, of our enemy, right? Of Satan. How he tempts us and then accuses us. He tempts us, oh, you could never, you could never follow Jesus. That's gonna, that's gonna be, it's gonna require too much of you. And then once we set out, he, he entices us to sin. Surely Christ wouldn't want you to suffer. Surely he wouldn't want it to be this hard for you. You deserve, 
You deserve rest. You deserve just go into sin here. It'll make you feel better. Turn away from Christ so that you can have ease again. And then when we fail, when we turn back, he accuses, what a fool. What a loser you are. You couldn't even stick it out with Christ. Now these accusations are not from God, but Jesus is saying, this is the reproach that a half-hearted commitment to Christ will invite. Look at his, his second example of loss. This one's not about a building, but it's a similar example. Look in verse 31. He says, or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he's able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? Now, of course, a king would assess his odds at winning in a battle. That's, that would happen. The king's at war. But he's realizing in this scenario that the task in front of him, it's, like, it's insurmountable. Like it's, the odds are beyond long. So what does he do? Does he turn back? Does he abandon his people, his kingdom? Or does he make plans to lose? Even if those plans are very costly to him, does he seek out what he will do? Count the cost. Look at verse 32. When he sees the plan, when the odds are so long, look in verse 32. He says, if not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. This king committed to his kingdom decides ahead of time, I will sacrifice even a victory, even my own glory, my own rights, even if the terms of peace are my life, that the cause can go forward. He's negotiating the terms of peace, saying, you know what, suffering, loss is part of, it's part of the cause I'm willing to accept. And Jesus goes on in verse 33 and says, in the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all of his possessions cannot be my disciple. When nothing is worth more than Christ to you, then losing everything else is a risk you're willing to take. Your relationships, not your own anymore. Your money, not your own. My dreams, my ambitions, everything I once thought was gain in this life, I'm willing to lose it. I counted all at loss, as the Apostle Paul said, so that I might gain Christ. And so I'll ask us the question today. For, for you who are Christians in the room, like, why did you come to Christ in the first place? I, I hope, I hope it's because you saw how beautiful he is. He, you saw how, how he saved you, that he forgave you. You rejoiced in the beauty of the gospel and that's why you came. But I, but I fear that for some, you came to Jesus because someone told you of everything that you could have. That everything's gonna be great. Life's gonna be great. You'll have your best life and you'll have it today. I once heard a, a speaker, uh, a great, uh, has a great ministry. His name's Rob Morris. He was speaking to a group of students um, and, and Rob said, uh, that he said, he said, my wife gives the best back rubs. This is what he told the students. He goes, but what if I married her because of the back rubs? What if that was the only thing I was in it for? 
What happens when the back ropes stop? And I'm afraid that some Christians, you just came because of the great back rubs. You were promised that following Christ would give you the best kids, would give you the happiest marriage, that it would make you respectable. And maybe some of that has worked out. God gives good gifts, he does. But what happens when all of these promises about the good life, none of which are guaranteed on this earth, what happens when all of those go away? What losses of being a disciple do you still need to consider? If you're checking out Christianity today, maybe you're, maybe you're here. What, I, what, what is it that you're looking for? Maybe, maybe you just stumbled in today and you're like, man, I don't, I don't know what I think about being a Christian. What are you looking for? The, the invitation to, to be a Christian is not the promise of ease forever. They're not the promise of ease uh, this week or next week or in this life. The call to Christ is an invitation to the only one who can satisfy the deepest needs you have. The only one who can actually forgive your sin, who can actually take your shame away. The one who can give you peace when there is chaos. And so I, I would urge you, come to him today. But don't come to him for something else than what he offers. He offers mercy. He offers forgiveness. He, he offers rest from trying to prove yourself to God. He's so good. And he's enough. You don't need something else from him. What he, what he has truly offered is all you need. Christian, how about for you? What, what possession? Like what good thing in your life? if you lost it, would cause you to turn back? Would cause you to say, you know what, it's not worth this. What happens when the back rubs go away? If God withholds from you the thing you've dreamed of most, will Christ be enough? Will he be enough? Spoiler alert, he is. He is enough. He is all you need. Which leads to our final point, the purpose and consolation of a disciple. The sort of disciple who has concluded, he's all I need. I'm willing to lose the rest. Christ is my greatest treasure. This sort of disciple is used powerfully by God. Look at verse 34. He says, now salt is good. But if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. A disciple of Christ is salty, like in a good way. Like salty is like a different term now. Uh, but a disciple of Christ is salty in the best way. Salt, salt has several functions. I'm no expert on salt, but I know that it makes things taste better, uh, the right amounts of it. Uh, I, I think he's even saying it's got use in farming. It has, salt has healing properties. It, has, it, it preserves things. Uh, and, and when a disciple of Jesus has reckoned Christ to be everything, they have those sorts of impacts on the people they're around, the places they go. They have a lasting impact. 
But imagine someone who calls themselves a disciple, but doesn't see Christ as worthy of the loss of all things. This is salt that's not salty. Like the actual Greek word actually means this is foolish salt. Like imagine a salt shaker full of foolishness. Like you're shaking it on the food. It looks like salt. It, I think it's salt, but you taste it. That was foolish salt. <laughs> Nothing, no taste. The person says, I follow Christ. But when you look at my life, what is there? It's just an old abandoned slab where something started. No daily treasuring of God and his word or prayer. No confession of sin. No coming back to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus. No dying to self. No serving others. No enduring suffering. No, there's just not, no salty flavor coming out of this, disciple, this so-called disciple's life. And Jesus is, again, using harsh words for someone like this. It, it, it will be thrown out, he says. Like, like the dead tree earlier in Luke that was chopped down and, and, and burned up. These non-disciple disciples, he said, well, they'll, they'll be thrown out, destroyed. And this is Jesus again warning those who would follow him. These Jews that he's speaking to who claimed to know God, but they ignore Christ. They wouldn't follow him. So let us hear the warning as well. A Christian who is a Christian in name only, this is not a disciple. You're not saved because of the family that you were born in. Kids hear that. Like you're, just because your parents love Jesus doesn't make you a disciple of Jesus. You aren't saved uh, because you attend church. You're not a disciple just because you didn't cheat on a test or you did some good things. You're not a disciple because you own a study Bible. Just because you're a good person. No, a disciple of Christ is one who has been made new, who has been made salty, been changed forever by Christ. It began as they saw the surpassing worth of Jesus and said, that's what I need. His grace is all that I need. I, I, I need it. And because he saved me, I'm, he, he's, the life he's called me to is worth it and I'm burning the ships. And when everyone else in my life walks away, a disciple says, where else am I gonna go? Where else am I gonna go but to Christ? His words are the words of life. And, and you may hear all this and go, man, this is daunting. Like this sounds, sounds impossible. Maybe you're overwhelmed by it. Maybe, maybe it's even discouraging to think about like what it costs to follow Christ. Maybe, maybe you would say today, man, I, I don't, I'm not strong. I'm not that strong. Like, I don't know if I could lose everything. I, I love Jesus, but my faithfulness is weak. Maybe you feel like a coward. I feel that way. I'm with you sometimes. Maybe, maybe you feel like I, don't, I, don't, I didn't strong, stand up strong enough when I needed to. Sometimes I, when I suffer, I despair instead of trust. It can be overwhelming. The cost is high. And I, and I think we don't see it always. Listen to what Elizabeth Elliot said. She said, to be a follower of the crucified Christ means sooner or later a personal encounter with the cross. And the cross always entails loss. It is not by any means an easy thing to recognize within a given instance of a personal loss. 
the opportunity it affords for participation in Christ's own loss. Every, every instance of suffering doesn't feel like it always. It doesn't feel like, man, this is, I see it. I see how it's all worth it. But it still will cost. But in the end, if you feel that way, if you feel overwhelmed, if you feel discouraged, can I just say this? Then the gospel's for you. Look at what, look, look at what Jesus said of those who would, who would count all the costs, who would, who would say, no matter what, I'm with Jesus. Look what, he, look what he calls you in verse 27 and verse 33. He calls those people my disciples. He said, they're mine. They belong to me. He, those who see their need belong to Jesus. If, if you can see your need and say to Jesus, I, I see it, I need it, I need your grace to complete it then he's called you to count the costs and walk with him. But he says, those that set out like that, are these are my disciples. Disciples of the Lord Jesus, they don't set out to walk the road of suffering alone. No, they walk behind Jesus and they place their feet in the place that he has already placed his. Jesus did not call you to be a shining pupil, an exemplar disciple. No, he called you to belong to him, to be his disciple. And he did not count, call us to count a cost that he himself did not pay. Before you ever decided whether you would endure pain for Christ, the scripture says he endured the immense agony of the cross. Before you were ever willing to accept the scorn of those around you for following Jesus, he felt the sting of a betrayer in the form of a kiss. He felt the sting of his friend denying him before you were willing to take up your cross daily, Jesus carried his and he carried it up a hill to Calvary where he died in your place. Why? Why would he do that? Who would willingly bear a cross? Hebrews says that Christ endured such suffering, such shame. Why? For joy. For the joy that was before him, he endured the cross. Jesus saw to the other side of his suffering. And what did he see? He saw the joy of his father. He saw the love that his father had for him. He saw the joy of his people. And he saw your forgiveness. He saw your future fellowship with him. He saw you being able to now endure through suffering. This was Christ's joy. Paul describes it like this, 2 Corinthians 8. He says, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. It is his grace that strengthens, his grace that makes you whole. And by his suffering and his resurrection, he has secured eternity for you. And in that eternity, there will be no more loss. But now this is the way of the Christian. We endure suffering, not so that Christ might receive us. Rather, we joyfully, like Christ, see through the suffering to the victory that he has accomplished, to the love that is for us, to the future that's already ours in him. 
And when we catch a glimpse of this, when we see his grace, no other love satisfies. No other gain can seem like anything worth his gain. It all seems like loss compared to him. No other feast will fill you because it's all eclipsed by the true feast, the true joy that is Christ. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, would you help us? Would you help those who right now, right now in this room who are tempted to turn back, who life, life is hard, suffering is immense and it's hard to see how it's worth it all. But Lord, would, would you give us just a glimpse, just a vision of the beauty of Christ, of the gain that is knowing him and walking with him, suffering with him. And what a vision of that finished work, that accomplished grace, that forever with us presence, Lord, would that sustain us through even the worst suffering? So Lord, where we are weak, would you strengthen us? Where we feel faithless, would you help us to be faithful? Lord, where there there are those here who don't know you, would the cost, would they see the cost, but more than the cost, Father, would they see the worth of Christ and would he outweigh it all? Lord, work in us by your grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.